Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for August 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature for the last month and talk about what caught our eye. So let's start with a nutrition article in JAMA. High protein enteral nutrition enriched with immune modulating nutrients versus standard high protein enteral nutrition and nosocomial infections in the ICU, a randomized clinical trial. So the debate about immune modulating diets during critical illness remains unresolved, perhaps best illustrated by the contradicting guidelines from Europe and the US. So the European Society for Clinical Nutrition and Metabolism Guidelines say that there is no general indication for immune-modulating nutrients in enteral nutrition in patients with severe illness or sepsis and Apache 2 scores of more than 15. The Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition say that immune-modulating nutrients in enteral nutrition should be used for appropriate patients, including critically ill patients, who breathe with the aid of mechanical ventilation and with caution in patients with severe sepsis, with grade A recommendations for surgical and grade B recommendations for medical ICU patients. Both guidelines recommend high-protein enteral nutrition to achieve target protein intake of 1.2 to 2.0 grams per kilogram body weight per day. So this trial, the MetaPlus trial, randomized 301 ventilated critically ill adult patients who were expected to be ventilated for 72 hours or more and receive enteral nutrition within 48 hours for at least 72 hours to either IMHP, which is glutamine, omega-3 fatty acid and antioxidant enriched enteral feed or high protein or HP, which is high protein enteral feed. Now both groups received enteral nutrition up to 25 kilocals per kilo per day. They report that the groups were similar at baseline with a median time to feed of 30 to 31 hours. Within three days, 70 to 80% were at target. The duration of administration of study drug was 12 to 13 days, so they got fed relatively early, got to close to target relatively quickly, and were fed for a fairly long time. So they got exposed to the drug or to the intervention. There was no difference in the primary outcome of new infections, and that was 53% in the IMHP group versus 52% in the high-protein group. There was no difference in the a priori subgroups, that is medical, surgical, and trauma, between IMHP and HP. And there was no statistically significant difference between the groups for any secondary outcomes except there was a mortality difference at six months in the medical subgroups and it was 54% in the IMHP group compared to 35% in the high protein group or HP group and that's a p-value of 0.04. The Cox proportional hazard ratio for six-month mortality adjusted for age and Apache 2 scores comparing IMHP with 
HP was 1.57, with 95% confidence intervals of 1.03 to 2.39, and a P value for 0.04. So, not great news for immune-modulating additives. The authors tell us, in terms of glutamine, this reinforces the results of Redox, which showed increased mortality rates in patients receiving glutamine supplement without reduction in, in infections. And Signet, a meta-analysis on enteral glutamine supplementation, showed no reductions in infectious complications or mortality rates. So what about omega-3 fatty acid? Well, the previous results are three RCTs that reported reduced length of ICU stay, improved SOFA scores, and lower mortality in patients with ALI, or sepsis-induced respiratory failure, while Eden, omega, was stopped for futility. So overall, there is a trend for reducing benefits with enteral supplements over time, and perhaps this reflects the more successful evidence-based feeding in the control arms of the recent trials. So overall, the last three large RCTs, Eden Omega, Redox, Signet, have found no benefit and possible harm with immunonutrition. So is it time that we put this to bed for good? Moving on to kids, and there's a number of articles on various aspects of paediatric care. So the first is randomized controlled trial comparing cerebral perfusion pressure-targeted therapy versus intracranial pressure-targeted therapy for raised intracranial pressure due to acute CNS infections in children, and this is published in Critical Care Medicine. So the authors of this trial argue that raised ICP is common in paediatric meningitis and is associated with worse outcomes, and that there is general consensus that ICP more than 20 millimeters of mercury should be treated. They hypothesize a cerebral perfusion pressure strategy may offer greater benefit than an ICP strategy, and they test it in an RCT design. So 110 children with acute, and that was less than seven days onset, of CNS infection, a GCS of less than or equal to eight, and evidence of raised ICP were randomized to either CPP greater than 60 or ICP less than 20. The groups were similar at baseline. 61.8% uh, had acute viral encephalitis, while 38% had bacterial meningitis. The treatment target was achieved in 65.4% of the ICP group and 87.3% of the CPP group. The primary outcome of 90-day mortality was higher in the ICP group at 38.2% than the CPP group of 18.2%, and that's a relative risk of 2.1% p-value of 0.02. Now, subgroup analysis revealed a significant difference depending on the type of infection. So in acute meningitis, CPP had a 10% mortality versus the ICP group, 41%, but not in acute encephalitis, where it was a mortality of 23% for the CPP group compared to 36% in the ICP group, and that latter one, encephalitis, wasn't significant. The CPP group had higher motor GCS score, shorter duration of coma, and a shorter duration of mechanical ventilation as well. 
non-survivors from both groups were unable to achieve treatment targets in the first 24 hours. And finally, CPP survivors had a lower proportion of neurodisability by 90 days. So the authors conclude that cerebral perfusion pressure targeted therapy provides superior mortality and neurological outcomes compared to intracranial pressure target therapy in acute paediatric CNS infections. This benefit is de derived predominantly from the effect in the acute bacterial meningitis group, with the authors postulating a greater effect of prevention of secondary injury through preservation of cerebral blood flow may be observed in the meningitis group compared to the encephalitis group due to the lesser primary injury to the brain in the meningitis group. This perhaps is supported by the increased use of hyperventilation in the ICP group. This is an important study with an important result, but the results need to be confirmed in a multi-centre population. The next paediatric article in JAMA is the association between early administration of high-dose EPO in preterm infants and brain MRI abnormality at term equivalent age. So this is not particularly a critical illness paper, but it is worth taking a look at because of the growing interest in the use of EPO in TBI. The authors tell us that the theory in this population is that EPO prevents acute injury by mechanisms such as inhibition of glutamate metabolism, modulation of intracellular calcium metabolism, induction of neuronal anti-apoptotic factors, reduction of inflammation, and decrease in nitric oxide mediated injury, and direct antioxidant effects. In addition, erythropoietin may influence developmental mechanisms by promoting the proliferation and differentiation of pre-oligodendrocytes and by stimulating growth factors. So this prospective trial has randomized 495 preterm infants to EPO versus placebo and it was given within 42 hours after birth with the primary outcome of neurodevelopment at 24 months. So that primary outcome is yet to be assessed and this paper reports the secondary outcome in 165 infants who had semi-quantitative MRI assessment of white matter injury, grey matter injury, compared to term-equivalent age-based controls. And they report that EPO was associated with a reduced risk of white and grey matter injury and white matter signal abnormalities and periventricular white matter volume loss compared to placebo. And these are all imaging biomarkers of the recently described encephalopathy of prematurity. So this is limited as a study as it's a secondary outcome presented early in a smaller population of the total study. But still it's a positive outcome and it certainly piques our interest in the final paper which will present neurodevelopmental outcomes at two years. The next paediatric article is the effect of oximetry on hospitalization in bronchiolitis, a randomized clinical trial, again published in JAMA. So bronchiolitis is the leading cause of infant hospitalizations, costs a lot, and is increasing in incidence. 
In the US, the hospitalization rate has risen from 12.9 to 31.2 per 1,000 over 20 years. With care algorithms defining oxygenation goals in them, it is probably worth making sure that these oxygenation goals are correct or evidence-based. So, what happens if the pulse oximeter is set to read 3 percentage point higher in infants presenting to the emergency department with bronchiolitis in the US, excluding those with saturations less than 88% or severe respiratory distress? Well, this trial randomized 213 otherwise healthy infants to plus 3% or true saturations and reported that plus 3% was associated with reduced hospitalizations within 72 hours and that went from 41% down to 25% p-value of 0.005 a non-significant decrease in subsequent unscheduled medical visits for bronchiolitis down from 21.3% to 14.3% and no ICU admissions or evidence of harm so again, this is not strictly an ICU study, but it raises the interesting and important issue of using surrogate outcomes like oxygenation to guide treatment decisions based on principles rather than evidence. Food for thought. Okay, let's move back into the world of adult critical illness. So in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have acute outcomes and one-year mortality of intensive care unit acquired weakness a cohort study and propensity matched analysis. For this planned analysis of the patients from the EPINIC Prospective Nutrition RCT examines the relationship between ICU acquired weakness and long-term one-year outcomes. They identified 227 of 415, that's 51%, long-stay patients as weak and this was assessed by two trained physios. And then they were able to propensity match 122 of these weak patients to non-weak patients in the EPINEC study. Compared to non-weak patients, weak patients were less likely to wean from mechanical ventilation, hazard ratio of 0.7, survive ICU, hazard ratio of 0.69, survive hospital, hazard ratio of 0.68, survive for one year, and that was 30.6% compared to 17.2%. Um, in addition, weak patients had higher healthcare costs. So overall, ICU-acquired weakness is associated with increased mortality, an effect that persists for the first year after critical illness, and in addition, it is associated with increased health care costs. What this doesn't tell us is what they are dying of and what we can do about it. So another article about long-term survival is published in Intensive Care Medicine and this is Distinct Determinants of Long-Term and Short-Term Survival in Critical Illness. So this long-term outcome paper is interesting in that it starts out by asking us to consider two different groups of survivors from critical illness with different determinants, determinants of survival for each. First, there are short-term survivors, that is, from the onset to the end of critical illness. Then, there are the determinants of long-term survival for those who actually survive critical illness. 
the authors performed a population-based analysis of adults admitted to 11 ICUs in Manitoba, Canada, comparing survival to age and gender matched population controls. They report a 30-day mortality rate of 15.9% and 90-day mortality rate of 19.5% from 33,324 ICU admissions. Survival curves that showed clear early high mortality and later low mortality after critical illness. 30-day mortality was predominantly determined by the acute illness, then age, and comorbidity. 90-day mortality was predominantly determined by age, then comorbidity, then the acute illness. So what does this tell us? Perhaps it is intuitive, but short-term survival is determined predominantly by critical illness-related factors, and if this phase is survived, it is age and comorbidities that increasingly govern long-term survival. Back to JAMA, and we have perioperative AF and the long-term risk of ischemic stroke. So again, long-term outcomes paper. In the general population, chronic AF is associated with a threefold increased risk of stroke, and stroke in AF patients is associated with a longer hospital length of stay, greater disability, and increased mortality compared with non-AF stroke. New onset perioperative AF is very common with well-described short-term morbidity and mortality consequences. What is not well-described are the long-term consequences of perioperative new-onset AF. This retrospective cohort study identified 1,729,360 eligible patients who had an index surgical hospital admission, excluding percutaneous cardiac procedures and pregnancy-related admissions, and patients with pre-existing AF. And this was done in California over a three-year period. They report 24,711 patients with new onset AF. That's 1.43% of the surgical population. Now, post-op AF is more common after cardiac surgery. Well, we knew that. Post-op AF patients had a higher burden of vascular comorbidities. The one-year cumulative rates of AF after non-cardiac surgery were 37.28% in those with perioperative AF compared to 1.5% in those without. One-year cumulative rates of AF after cardiac surgery were 22.2% in those with perioperative AF compared to 4.65% in those without. That is, if you get perioperative AF, you're much more likely to get AF in the following year. Now, 13,952 patients had a post-surgical stroke, and that's 0.81% of the surgical population. The stroke patients were older with more vascular comorbidities. The one-year cumulative rates of stroke after non-cardiac surgery were 1.47% in those with perioperative AF, compared to only 0.36% in those without. And the one-year cumulative rates of stroke after cardiac surgery were 0.99% in those with perioperative AF compared to 0.83% in those without. So after Cox proportional analysis, 
periop AF remained associated with stroke after non-cardiac surgery with a hazard ratio of 2 and cardiac surgery hazard ratio of 1.3 with a stronger association for non-cardiac surgery. So in summary, this retrospective cohort study describes a significant association between new onset perioperative AF and long-term risk of ischemic stroke, particularly in non-cardiac surgery patients. This has important implications for the ongoing care of these patients and the need for long-term ambulatory monitoring of these patients to better delineate the risk of transient versus persistent AF and to guide antithrombotic therapy. Okay, let's move on to renal replacement therapy. So, timing of renal replacement therapy and patient outcomes in the randomized evaluation of normal versus augmented level of renal replacement therapy study. That was the ANZICS clinical trials group renal study. So this nested observational cohort study of 439 patients with rifle criteria for acute kidney injury in the renal RCT reports no relationship between the onset of acute kidney injury, timing of initiation of continuous renal replacement therapy, and outcomes, which are 28-day mortality and 90-day mortality. This result remained after multivariate analysis. Analysis using urea concentration at time of initiation of continual renal replacement therapy revealed a significantly increased risk of death with elevated urea independent of the timing of initiation of CRRT. So it is a negative study although it is worth noting that the average time to onset of continuous renal replacement therapy was less than 24 hours. That is, most patients received early continuous renal replacement therapy. The hazard ratio for death at both 28 and 90 days did increase with delay in continuous renal replacement therapy but was never significant. So it may be that this is an underpowered to detect a difference and that the group with the greatest delay had the lowest severity of illness scores, raising the possibility of selection bias due to delay in initiation of continuous renal replacement therapy in less sick patients. So it's an uncertain result. Although it suggests that there's no advantage from early renal replacement therapy in acute kidney injury, it might be underpowered. Um, it probably suggests that there's no harm, no benefit, and some signals. And maybe it's a call for a larger study looking into this area. Okay, in critical care medicine, we have obesity and one-year outcomes in older Americans with severe sepsis. This observational study of 1,404 severe sepsis hospitalizations from Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in the U.S. Nationally Represented Health and Retirement Study adds further evidence to the obesity paradox. So in this cohort, 42.5% were normal weight, 33.7% were overweight, and 23.8% were obese. They found the obese were younger, more likely to be non-white, female, diabetic, less wealthy, with more renal dysfunction and more baseline ADL limitations. Higher BMI was associated with lower hospital 90-day and one-year mortality in unadjusted analysis. 
And this association remains significant after multivariate regression analysis compared with normal weight patients. So obese patients had an odds ratio of death of 0.59 and severely obese patients an odd ratio of 0.46. Among sepsis survivors there was no difference in prior healthcare utilisation. In the year after sepsis higher BMI was associated with higher utilisation of healthcare. However the mean percent of days alive in healthcare was not different across BMI categories suggesting that this increase in use amongst obese patients is driven by survival. In summary, obesity is common amongst older sepsis survivors in the US and is associated with decreased mortality up to one year after hospitalization. Beyond mortality, there is not much difference in outcome compared to baseline. As in previous studies with similar findings, the question is why? Protective effects of adipose, better tolerance of recondition, different demographic of infective illness, unmeasured confounders, etc. Okay, back to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. We have nasal high flow versus Venturi mask oxygen therapy after extubation. Effects on oxygenation, comfort and clinical outcomes. So, the use of humidified high-flow nasal cannula in adults has been an area of recent interest due to the advantages of high-flow, that is, it exceeds the patient's peak inspiratory flow, comfort, humidification and pressure effects not seen in the low-flow devices. This open-label RCT adds further weight to the claims of benefit. In 105 patients with a PF ratio of less than or equal to 300 just before extubation, who were randomized to high-flow nasal cannula or Venturi mask, high-flow nasal cannula was associated with better PF ratio, less discomfort, less device displacement, oxygen desaturation, re-intubation, or any ventilation support. So, a good outcome for high-flow nasal cannula. Finally, we have in critical care medicine, empiric antibiotic treatment reduces mortality in severe sepsis and septic shock from the first hour results from a guideline-based performance improvement program. While many components of the severe sepsis guideline recommendations may be debated, delay in initiation of appropriate antibiotic therapy is recognized as a risk factor for mortality in severe sepsis. This recommendation is unlikely to face much challenge. It seems self-evident, although many medical truisms that are later disproved boast this characteristic. So this article, analyzing the association between timing of antibiotic administration and mortality, to evaluate whether an optimal time window for empiric antibiotic administration exists in septic shock, is a valuable addition to the literature. The authors conducted a retrospective analysis of about 18,000 patients from 165 ICUs in Europe the US and South America who had severe sepsis and septic shock and received antibiotics. They report that the overall hospital mortality was 29.7%. The analysis of outcome by antibiotic time to treatment in one hour time periods from sepsis to antibiotics for the first six hours showed that mortality of 32% in the first hour dropping to 28.1% in the second hour, then steadily increasing 
to 39.6% after 6 hours. This first hour group had the highest median sepsis severity score compared to all other time points and the highest proportion of severe sepsis septic shock identified in ICU, that is, the group in the first hour with the sickest group. The logistic regression adjusted for severity of illness score, ICU admission source and geographic region shows that the mortality odds ratio steadily increases from 1 to 1.52 as time to antibiotic administration increases from 0 to greater than 6 hours, where 0 to 1 hour is the reference group. So overall, this study confirms the association between delay in initial antibiotic administration and increased mortality in severe sepsis septic shock in a large retrospective cohort. There are no surprises here, and although there are limitations, that is, the difficulty in identifying onset of sepsis in a large database linkage retrospective study where timing is the variable, the assessment of appropriateness of antibiotics, etc., it is a strong signal. And how many of us know the door to antibiotic time in our own institution? Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club podcast for August 2014. Come to the website and have a look. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Bye.